Aloha and welcome to Conversations to Enlighten and Heal. Today I'll be speaking with Dr. Carol Reitberger about the hidden meanings behind illness and what personality has to do with health and well-being. Conversations is sponsored by HealthMasterySystems.com, Holistic Products for Body, Mind, and Soul, and PurePlanEssentials.com, Organic Aromatherapy. Please visit these websites today. Be sure to visit the iTunes Store and subscribe to our complete lineup of shows on Conversations to Enlighten and Heal. Dr. Carol Reitberger is a radio host, Hay House author, and an innovative leader in personality, psychology, and behavioral medicine. Dr. Reitberger is an internationally renowned medical intuitive with more than 28 years of experience helping people understand how personality, emotional, psychological, and spiritual energy are at the root of illnesses, disease, and life crises. Dr. Reitberger is the author of Your Personality, Your Health. What color is your personality? Love. What's personality got to do with it? Managing people. What's personality got to do with it? And healing happens with your help. Understanding the hidden meaning behind illness. Dr. Reitberger's work has been featured in the media, on radio and television, and her books are used as textbooks in numerous educational institutions. Her books are available at hayhouse.com and amazon.com. Carol hosts her own live call-in internet radio show, The Carol Reitberger Show, every Wednesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time on contacttalkradio.com. To learn more about Dr. Carol Reitberger and her work as a medical intuitive, schedule a private reading, or register for her free monthly teleclass, please visit her website at reitberger.com, where you can also take a short assessment to learn your own personality color. That website is reitberger.com. That's R-I-T-B-E-R-G-E-R.com. Please welcome to the show my very special guest, Dr. Carol Reitberger. Aloha, Carol. Welcome to the show. I am so delighted to have you with us. Well, thank you very much for having me. I feel exactly the same way about you and uh, your listeners. What is a medical intuitive? What exactly do you do as a medical intuitive? (laughs) It took me a long time to be able to really figure that out, uh, KG. And what it is, a medical intuitive is someone who's really takes their intuition and focuses it at the energy field of who we are. We know that we have an energy field. It's also called an aura. And it's a living field of information, basically, that tells, it's kind of like a barometer. It tells what's happening in the physical body, what's happening happening mentally and emotionally. And a medical intuitive is a person who develops their intuitive skills to tap into that energy field to find out if there's any kind of disharmony or any kind of disruption in the flow of the chi or energy and then takes that information and then approaches the physical body and looks at the physical body to see what is functioning properly and what is not. Mm -hmm. So we're really kind of someone that goes in and looks at the layers of people uh, and in doing so we see illness or the predisposition for illness or aches and pains from a completely different, more of a holistic, comprehensive perspective than a doctor that would look at the body and look at symptoms and then go from there. Mm-hmm. How did you become a medical intuitive? Oh, my goodness. This is something that uh, probably I never in my wildest dreams would ever think I put on a job resume. I uh, was doing corporate work. As you had mentioned, my background is in personality behavioral psychology. and. 
really my personality is a scientist and very much into understanding human behavior. And um, as a result of a near-death experience in 1981, not only did my life change and my focus change, but my eyesight was changed to where the doctors I work with from all over the world call me the human x-ray machine. I can literally see the aura, that that non-visible part of us that we know is very real and measurable, but I can see that, and I can see where there's pre-illness or disharmony in the energy field, and then also how's that affecting the health of the body and the well-being of the body. So it's something, again, I would have never in my wildest dreams, but uh, as a result of the near-death experience, everything literally changed. Mm-hmm. So what inspired you to write your latest book, Healing Happens With Your Help, The Hidden Meanings Behind Illness? Well, what I have found is that uh, over the course of almost, oh my goodness, 28 years of doing this work, is I found that there were specific patterns in the energy field that represented where we hold thoughts and emotions in the body. And over these thousands of readings that I've done, I found that it didn't make any difference what our age was or if we were male or female or even what our ethnic background was. We specifically hold the common emotions of anger and fear and guilt and resentment and grief and disappointment and all those negative emotions that are so much a part of our life that we actually hold those not only in the energy field, but we hold them specifically in the organs and glands Mm -hmm. and in the case of emotions in the muscle structure and then in the case of thoughts and fears in the spine. So over the course of time and a lot of documentation, I thought, you know, it would be really helpful for us to really be able to participate in our healing, whether it's an ache or a pain or something that could be life-threatening it would be very important for us to really understand all of the things that could potentially be contributing to this disharmony in the field or illness in the body rather than just the external contaminants that we're so used to looking at, viruses and bacteria. So I thought, you know, all this research and all this education and all these wonderful people that sat in front of me, this is a tool that people can really go into that healing preventative mode of looking at what happens to the body instead of waiting until mm-hmm. it happens and then using, <coughs> excuse me, intervention. Mm-hmm. And so that's what really prompted me. I thought, you know, this is um, quantifiable information that would really be of value to people. Mm-hmm. In your book, you talk about the differences between curing and healing. Tell us, what are the differences? Oh, my goodness, again, excuse me for chuckling, but it just, it was so obvious after the fact of really looking at the two. I was always curious, KG, why did some people seem to be able to heal almost miraculously and yet other people who were following all the things that were tried and true, what was the difference between the people that struggled at it and the people that seemed to just be able to do it? And what I found is is that most of the techniques that's offered through allopathic medicine, conventional medicine, basically looks at the symptoms. Mm -hmm. And curing is designed to help remove the symptoms or the aches and pains from the body to free the mind so it doesn't fixate on it. Uh, Curing is like putting a Band-Aid on a boo-boo. It takes away all of the, the obvious contributors 
and by using drugs and using pharmaceuticals, and I, I'm not anti-medicine, I am not anti-doctor at all. I, um, if someone needs to have, uh, you know, drugs would be the best way or pharmaceuticals would be the best way, I'm the first one to tell them. But I found that what that does is it relieves the pain and it takes care of the surface, but it doesn't go in and take care of that depth of what contributed in the first place. Mm-hmm. And that's what healing does. Um, curing is where we go to someone and we say, would you please fix me? I, I hurt. Where healing is, I want to stop hurting and I want to participate in this. I'm willing to make the changes and to be able to look at the things that I can personally engage in to be able to make myself whole and healthy. Mm-hmm. And that's the primary difference is one is, okay, this part, and then the other part is let me join in and really be a part of this. And then we not only get to be able to deal with what's happening in the physical body, but the gift of illness, as strange as it sounds, is it gives us a chance to go in. It's a teacher. Mm-hmm. It gives us a chance to go in and look at our lives. I'll say to clients all the time, until you something happened in your body, you were so busy being busy, and what this did is it put you in your body and said, what in my life needs to change? And that's the great gift of illnesses, everything that was important. You know, an hour before you became sick, after that you became sick or ill, whatever term, all of a sudden it's all about you. It's all about making yourself not only better, but better than you were before you even became ill. That's mm-hmm. another part of healing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a whole journey. I think of healing as wholeness. Oh, it is, absolutely. And it's it's literally touching every part of who we are and, and recognizing that, you know, I I read a quote once that I just loved. It says, anytime you engage with anyone other than yourself, there's supposed to be, there will be dysfunction. Mm-hmm. And the real message behind that is, is that in order to be liked or loved or accepted, each one of us does things for that, that in many ways is against the very nature of who we are. Mm-hmm. And the healing process says, let's get back and understand who you are. What do you like? What do you love? What is important? What are you willing to change? What can you change? You know, and and really looking at everything. So it's a completely, uh, as you say, it's very holism in its approach. Mm -hmm. You say that illness is just the tip of the iceberg. What do you mean by that, Carol? (laughs) Well, you know, again, we go back um, when we hurt. The mind fixates on the physical body. Mm-hmm. And so the process of looking at illness is all through the physical body. And in most cases, by the time people will go and seek any kind of, whether it's alternative therapies or seeing an actual conventional or allopathic doctor, the process has evolved to the point where we're at symptoms. And we go to a doctor, and the doctor asks us the question. We talk about the symptoms and so forth on it. And what they do is they treat symptoms. So when you look at the illness part of it, you have to see that the physical body is only the part on the surface, but underneath that surface there's a big, huge formation of thoughts and emotions and attitudes, and every one of us has a story. And we can tell that story to gain acceptance or in order to feel like we're a part of our belonging to a group, we can use it as inspiration. But we really, in the whole 
healing modality and that equation of healing, that holism that we are talking about. We really have to go below the surface mm -hmm. and realize that we have to look at ourselves as an energetic being. And we have to allow our body to be able to talk to us through energy, and that's what I'm referring to. So what role do emotions play in becoming ill, Carol? Interesting, because there's so much conversation around emotions and how they are really why we become ill. And I found over the course of my time of working with people, KG, yes, emotions do change us chemistry-wise, both positive and negative. What that does is an emotion is an instantaneous chemical change in the body. And that chemical change is part of fight or flight. And fight or flight tells us where we are, what we're doing, what we're saying is not in alignment with who we are. So the emotions create this chemical chain reaction that if we stay in those patterns of thinking or patterns of behavior, they build on themselves and that adrenaline corticosteroid and cortisone builds on itself until we have elevated levels of cortisone. And that's where emotions comes in and really plays into the illness dynamics is it just keeps our body chemically out of balance. Mm -hmm. And the longer we stay in that chemical out of balance, the more difficult it is for the body to get back into balance. And it's almost like over the course of time, it forgets how. And that's where healing comes in. It says, okay, let's go in and look at everything and let's reteach our body or our mind or change our thoughts and being able to look at what isn't working for us and then be able to change that. Could you talk about the relationship between emotions, attitudes, and healing? I can. And, you know, I found so much that in my work as a medical intuitive, emotions are that chain reaction. But the reality of it is is it's the attitudes, those emotions. Say, for example, that your, you know, negative emotions around having to uh, do something over and over again or maybe go see a family member and it's like, oh, my gosh, I don't want to do this and you know, it always hurts my feelings, and then it makes me mad, and then I get angry, and, you know, why can't we do this? So that is a pattern. And what I find is, is then we create this pessimism around family. Mm -hmm. And it's that attitude of pessimism that I find really breaks the body down because that's what prolongs those emotions. That's what feeds that anger is the pessimism. And feeds the resentment and everything else. So when we look at illness, we have to certainly look at the chemistry of emotions. But how and we, we actually get addicted to certain chemistry, right? Certain we, emotions. Yes, we do. You're absolutely so right, KG. We do. It's kind of like those habitual thoughts. It's easier to stay in that place of being addicted to those emotions. And that's really what we're talking about in attitude. Absolutely. And those attitudes form our comfort zones and our habits and habits are difficult to break unless we can you know peel back again those layers but you're absolutely right well we get addicted isn't it part of the ego structure the attitudes we become identified with we we're inside of it even we don't even know we have an attitude at, after a time i think oh i couldn't agree with you more and you're right it does it becomes our identity and uh that identity, then other people have expectations around it, and then if we try to change, 
then they think, oh, well, what's wrong with you? You're trying to change. I like you better where you were before, even if that was pessimism. Mm -hmm. I like you better. And you're so right because we get so caught up in them that we don't even recognize we're in them. And that's where I find these hidden contributors come in and start breaking the body down and and compromise the energy field. Mm -hmm. Well, there is a lot of talk about the importance of our thoughts also. What role do thoughts play in our life experiences? They literally drive everything. Uh, You know, it's been something that over the course of really hundreds of years we've heard about is, uh, you know, watch your thoughts, change your thoughts, be mindful of your thoughts. While we're exquisite in our humanness, we are literally thinking machines. Mm -hmm. And we're producing thought after thought after thought. In fact, some of the new uh, dynamics in the field of neuroscience says that hypothetically we create 60,000 thoughts a day. And I mean, I I don't know about you, KG, but sometimes I can't even remember the thought I had 30 seconds ago. So then we have to go back to the attitudes and we have to go back to those habits and so forth. But thoughts really are what we are. Every time we create a thought, that thought goes to our heart. And the way I see it, that heart adds an emotion. Mm-hmm. And that then it enters out and it's like a broadcast. It says, does anybody share this thought? Mm-hmm. And if anybody does, then their emotions intermingle with it and the law of attraction says it comes back to you. So thoughts are very powerful and it's impossible for us to think about every thought we think about because then we wouldn't do anything else. But if we look at our habits and look at our comfort zones and look at the identities, as you said, they really tell us, is this really who we are or is this what our thoughts have caused us to believe? Well, what are thoughts? Where do thoughts come from? I know the in uh, the biology of belief, uh, Bruce Lipton, he talks about that we're, we're like ma- receiving stations, antenna, where we receive we're receptors, sites. We are. And so where do the thoughts come from? And, it, you know, yeah, are we are we like, uh, you know, we have a certain frequency, so we attune to and attract certain thoughts and download certain thoughts? Is that how it works? It is. And it's interesting because in the this neuroscience aspect of trying to understand thoughts, and looking at that neurology, basically, or that biological part that Bruce talks about in his book, all it is is a chemical change in the brain. But nowhere in science has it been able to say what that chemical reaction is as far as the thought. We are the creator of our thoughts. Only we create them, and only we build off of them. But what occurs is we get conditioned to create repetitive thoughts. So it really is a chemical reaction that happens in the brain, and the brain becomes addicted to the same chemical reactions or the same thoughts. We create thoughts inside that inner wisdom that we have, but we're most often impacted in that chemical reaction from what happens outside of us. How do we perceive what is happening? That's what triggers that chemical reaction. Mm So really, nowhere in science have we been able to come in and say, okay, this chemical change is anger or this chemical change is uh, disappointment. But what we can see is that chemical change that's so instant and so 
changing of everything, not only the brain chemistry, but the body chemistry, that we can start to go in and equate that chemistry change with maybe that's what anger looks at. Or we can also do positive. That's what joy looks at. Mm -hmm. But you're so right. So much of what we are and what we think is really fed to us by what we see, hear, think, touch, taste, or smell. It's all through our physical senses, and it's what happens outside of us. Mm-hmm. So what role does personality play in our health, illness, and healing, Carol? Oh, this is a, I mean, I love medical intuition, but this is a passion because um, I've been so interested in Carl Jung's approach to trying to understand human behavior, and Jung's work really looked at what he called four distinct modes of psychological functioning, big mouth full. But basically what Carl Jung did is he studied how do we gather information and make decisions. And I became intrigued in that very early on in trying to understand human behavior. And what I found is that no matter how unique we are, meaning different than others, we all have specific patterns. And those patterns can be categorized into what I do is color. I think that color is a lot easier. It's a universal language to be able to look at our differences. But what I found is that each of us, as different as we are, have similarities. We gather information a certain way and we make decisions. And what I've done with that uh, background and understanding the personality is, in my own research, says that any time you compromise how you gather information or how you make decisions, you're going to have a chemistry change in the body, and it's literally going to map in the body based on organs and glands where we have the most susceptibility to feeling that tension or that fight or flight, and then what is that chain reaction. So I took the understanding of human behavior, the psychology of color, understanding auras and being able to see them, and then looking at our neurology and found that everything does begin in the head. And the head is everywhere in the body. It is. Right. It's in, <laughs> absolutely. It is, Katie. It is, it is in the heart because, you know, And the, the heart brain, actually has, I understand, more neurons uh, than the brain as far as receiving and uh, integrating uh, information and transmitting information. It does, and in fact, in every chemical thought or every chemistry change we have in our body, in our head, the head itself doesn't add uh, the emotion. The brain, the way it's designed, says, oh, this information is causing me pain, or oh, this information is causing me pleasure, because it'll actually activate parts of the brain. Mm -hmm. But those thoughts go down that spinal column down to that heart, and the heart, based on, oh, this is pain, will add a negative emotion. Oh, this is pleasure. It'll add a positive emotion. So in my work as a medical intuitive, the heart is literally this receiving, tra- this transmitter that's always sending out and receiving only the emotions attached to the thoughts. Mm-hmm. And as we look at that, and then we know that every cell in our body is a dynamic living field, um, a, a hologram of our thoughts and emotions, then every cell in our body is going to react chemically to either pain or pleasure or positive or negative emotions. 
that basically is held in the heart. And the heart is um, it's exquisite. And from the standpoint, the soul that we hold within us, and, uh, you know, uh, Gary Zukoff calls it the seat of the soul. It is so true. It is where our heart is, both of our inner self and then also the heart that we share with others. Mm-hmm. All emotions, whether it's our soul emotions or whether it's our human emotions, it is literally that assemblage point where we come together with ourselves. And it's a, it's a magnificent, exquisite place for us to, if we could understand that. Mm-hmm. So what are the four different personality types by color, Carol? And tell us something about each. Oh, well, that's uh, going back. I d- went in and did uh, the psychology of color. How does color impact us? Chemically, how does it impact us emotionally, and uh, again, how does it impact the brain? And then, when I did the overlays in my research with the four lower chakras, the first chakra red, second chakra orange, third chakra yellow, fourth chakra green, I found in my work and research that's where all illness manifests itself, whether it starts in the brain or not. We either have stomach problems, shoulder problems, back problems, or lower leg problems. And so I went in, and so the four personality colors are red, orange, yellow, green. The red personality is very grounded, very down to earth. Mm-hmm. They are literal. What you you know, what you say is what they hear. That's what they act on. It's only black and white. They're not comfortable in gray areas. They resist change until they get all the information, the facts, and as a result. A lot of people see them as kind of always playing devil's advocate or being, you know, uh, the naysayer of everything. But the truth is, their neurology is, if you can't see it, hear it, touch it, taste it, smell it, it's not real. And you make decisions logically. And if anybody comes in and tries to change that perception in their neurology, it doesn't work. The next personality is the orange personality, very people-sensitive, cooperative, kind, generous, they're the only personality color that literally will live the motto by putting other people's needs before their own. They emotionally worry about people. They feel guilty if they can't meet people's needs. They just want peace. They want people to be able to get along and everybody be happy. They are a little bit different in their neurology, which creates some time for them to process their decisions and So what that means is they gather information through the five physical senses. Information has to make sense. But they make decisions on emotional judgment. So not only has the decision got to make sense, but it's got to feel right. And sometimes that takes time. And the orange, because they don't like conflict, they don't want to say to someone, oh, I I can't make that decision right now because of the potential conflict. So as a result, they will usually go along with the plan until all of a sudden one day it's like, I can't do this anymore. So they're very kind, very gentle people, wonderful people to have involved in putting together uh, social events. And reds are great at providing and taking care of basic needs. And oranges are very good to see that those basic needs from an emotional standpoint are met. Then there's the yellow personality. Oh, my goodness. Um, they jump all around in their brain. In fact, I think I'll come back to them and just give you an example, KG, of the green. The green is the personality that gathers information basically through their intuition, through their ESP or 
what a lot of greens will say to me, Carol, it's five male. I get this all the time. And what they do is they read for those, they look for those nonverbal cues. They want to know what is the person truly feeling? What is the emotional charge within the person or the situation? As a result, opposite of the red, they go in and information just comes to them. It's, they see it, but it just starts this random processing in their brain, like these little pictures and patterns. And once they get those patterns picked up, uh, put together and the picture becomes bigger, they drop into their heart and they say, does this picture feel right to me? Does this decision feel right to me? And if it does, they make a decision. So where the red is totally left hemisphere and they're gathering and making decisions, the green is totally right hemisphere. And then the orange is left hemisphere and right hemisphere. The greens are very much dreamers. They're visionaries. They are really what I call the Johnny Appleseeds of the world. They love to create ideas and to share these ideas and inspire people and create this enthusiasm around life and just wonderful, wonderful gifts. And, you know, just anybody says change, they say, okay, count me in, let's go. And then I'll go back now. The yellow in the personality world, they're the people who are deep thinkers. They have to have the time to be able to think things through. They become irritated when they get pressed too quickly to make decisions. Where the orange won't say anything, the yellow will basically say, stop, I'm not going to make this decision right now. I need time. The yellow neurology also gathers information from that nonverbal clues and inner knowing of patterns. They gather information through their five physical senses. So they're really in both hemispheres in gathering information. Then they go over to the left hemisphere, make decisions logically, but that's not enough. Then they have to go over to the right hemisphere and go, so I see the big picture. It makes sense to me. It's logical, but does it feel right? So they're bouncing around in their brain. Every thought, every decision they make mm -hmm. has to go through that process, and it takes time. Mm -hmm. uh, the yellows are visionaries. They're problem solvers. They live to solve problems. Um, in fact, a lot of times they can irritate people because they can identify a problem even before a person has it and then try to help them, and the person's going, what are you talking about? I don't even know about it. So those are the four colors and based on neurology and mm -hmm. All of those neurologies I talked about, KG, mm -hmm. come in. Well, and can you see? Can you life. see what color people are? When you I can, I can. But can you tell I, what uh, color I am? What color would I, you say? I can by your voice. I can by your words and everything. And and I can tell you that who you are is that I believe that you've operated as a green most of your life, and you love that creativity. We talked about that before we started the show and how inspiring it is and how much you enjoy it and the change agent of who you are. But you're very logical. You're very defined. You're, you know, you can have fun, but you make decisions that feels logically and you back it up with the decisions. And so if I were looking at you in the personality world just from listening to your words and your voice, I would say that you're a yellow that very early in your life decided that you were too much of a square peg in a round world and you became a green. <laughs> and your numbers are really close. And so what that is, the closeness, if I were doing the assessment, is that 
you can go between the green creativity and the big, big picture and then the yellow bit deep thinker and the deep thinker of the yellow and then the big picture. And it's a wonderful place for you to be able to flex from one to the other so easily, except that sometimes we get lost in that flexing and we have to come back and get comfortable in our skin. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, from the emails we had and so forth, um, that was also your, a telltale sign that you're a yellow first and a green second, but so close that you just uh, seamlessly move from one to the other. Mm-hmm. Yes, I, I, you know, I, I think that you learn how to do that when you're... Um, I really relate to the orange, too, because I'm very sensitive to other people and feel them. And so um, I think that you do kind of truncate yourself. You know, I feel like I've done that, like, even with my my speech, because a lot of people, when I moved out of the South, people couldn't understand me. So I wound up changing a lot of my, the way I accented my words and stuff, so people could understand me. So I think just as a way to kind of get along and, you know, people do that, that you, I mean, isn't, I think Darwin said that the people who are the survivors are the ones who are most responsive to change. Absolutely. So. And and the nice part of the personality aspect, like you said, the yellow is a wonderful protector. Mm-hmm. And that protector can is very emotionally sensitive to people's needs, and that's when you would walk into that orange part. And then mm-hmm. if you found that their needs were such that they needed to have help, you'd be the first one to be able to do that, and then you'd be the first one in that green to cheer people on. So we, in order to adapt and survive in this world, every one of the colors has to be able to step outside of themselves and their neurology mm-hmm. in, a, in a way that isn't so much compromised where it creates that chemical reaction. But what I found in my research is all of those are wonderful gifts of adapting and changing. But when we get stressed, KG, we always go back to our neurology. Yes. Yes. And if we know what that, if that, you know, call it a color or, you know, we could do it through personality or through, you know, words or anything, when the rubber hits the road and you go back to the place where you're stressed, know that's where you're going to go. Go there. And then once you're there, then you can use your other colors to become this expansive you know, perception of everything that's possible. Mm-hmm. So, and the, the skill, people will say to me, well, Carol, shouldn't I be just my color? And it's like, no, you should not be. This is, I mean, you are from the standpoint of your neurology, know that. But the gift of life is to be able to dance outside of your color and to find places within each of them that they can be beneficial. Mm-hmm. I was thinking as I was listening to you talk, one of the great gifts that I was able to pick up is that you can create and manifest. Because you're green and you're yellow, but your green really uh, creates, but your yellow comes in and puts the plan in place. The orange comes in and gets people involved in it, and the red comes in and says, let's do it. Mm -hmm. And that part of your green and your yellow is just, it's wonderful. It's like you said, it's what drove you to 
change your patterns of speech or to identify yourself and what you want to bring to this world. And each one of us has that. But it comes back to just knowing who we are, doesn't it? Yes. And I wanted to remind everyone that they can go to your website to do a short assessment to learn about their own personality color at your website, and that's rightburger.com. Absolutely. It's a good place to start. Yes. So how does the color of our personality affect our relationships, both personal and professional, Carol? Oh, boy. Good question. Good question. Uh, From the standpoint... It's like this inner radar, KG. What it is is it's like we can walk into a room of people that we don't even know. Say it's a a business meeting or a business cocktail party or a social situation, whatever it may be. And our personality is literally sending out this message. Hi, is anyone in this room a green? Is anyone in this room a yellow? Mm -hmm. And the people who are similar to us, will be attracted to us. It's like an unspoken magnetic attraction. And we'll find these people around us and we'll be thinking to ourselves, gee, they're just like me. They share the same information. They have the same interest. And then what will happen is that also when people will approach you, we talk about bad chemistry. It's really true from from the neurological, biological part of the body. When someone is different than we are in their neurology, then, and they approach us, we instantly know that at a deep level we're not going to get on the same wavelength. Mm-hmm. We don't have anything in common, and lo and behold, you start trying to drum up a conversation, small talk, and, you know, each person's brain is going, how can I get out of this? You know, do I have to go to the bathroom? Do I need to get a drink? Do I need to talk to somebody else? But literally, it's so uncomfortable for us to be with people who are different than we are until we learn how to be able to acclimate to that. Mm -hmm. So in compatibility and working with people, your personality defines how you communicate, the words that you use to communicate, the tasks that you're attracted to, the tasks that you're going to procrastinate around, the people you're going to be attracted to, people that you're not, stress, what doesn't stress you. And from the standpoint of being compatible, human nature is to always go with people who are like us. But we miss a lot because the people who are different offer a completely different perspective. And that takes our limit. And so there's great value, but there's always great value being with other personalities. But there's always that first little bit of tension if they're different than we are, isn't there? Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. So, can the color of our personality change from a neurological standpoint ever in our life? And um, can it be influenced such that we never really are our personality color? No, I'm saying if somebody dominates us, or how is it influenced, and how does that affect the health? Are you following what I'm asking? I do, I do. And again, another great question with this because. I found that the number one cause, the common denominator in all illness, pre-illness first in the energy field, illness in the body, is this feeling of compromise. Mm-hmm. And the personality itself, neurologically, how we're hardwired and gathering information and making decisions does not change. The only way we could probably do it, KG, is a lobotomy, and that certainly isn't an option. <laughs> but what we can do is that to know that that's who we are 
and then to be able to accept it and then to be able to expand into creating some alignment with the other colors. When we're in a situation, whether it's at work or with a partner uh, at home or children or whatever, there's a natural tendency for there to be um, domineering behavior associated with the interaction with people. There's just a natural power struggle that takes place Unless I really have found that people are neurologically the same, then they deal with tension by all means, but there's not that chemical reaction. What we do is when we're in that case is we adapt, but the neurology of who we are does not change. And if there is a power struggle, who we are neurologically, meaning how we gather decisions, uh, gather information and make decisions, does not change no matter how long we're with someone or how suppressed or submissive we may have to be in that relationship or how domineering we are. That it, when stress occurs, that person's true neurology is going to change the chemistry in the body to where the true personality, as Gurchev and Aspinsky said, is going to come forward. Mm -hmm. And that's where the power struggles come in. When we mm -hmm. first meet each other, oh my gosh, love is blind. How true that is, isn't it? <laughs> Well, it's a lot of projection, I think. Absolutely. Yes. Absolutely. And a lot of projection and that transference of, you know, ourselves, we fall back the into that. The unmet self behavior. and all the unmet needs and all that all just comes flooding that forward. Yes. Yeah, we want everybody to save us. We want people to make us better. We want to, you know, and love will be able to do that. And, oh, my gosh, by all means, it does to some degree. But, but not from the other person. It's your own self-love. You're giving yourself love. Absolutely. That's the only love there really is because without that, then we become the love everybody else wants us to be, don't we? Mm -hmm. That's Yes, you're totally transmitting it once you've really fallen in love with yourself. You are. And then it's easy to enter into relationships that are mutually beneficial and mutually satisfying because... We know what our needs are. We know and you don't have any need, the need for anybody to fulfill you because you're fulfilled. Absolutely. So then that's the reward of life. So, so when you're with someone, it's because you really do enjoy their company and you share commonalities or you share the differences to where you can both grow individually and then collectively. And uh, that self-love begins with self-acceptance. Yes, absolutely. Definitely. And, uh, you know, that's something that it's difficult for that us. That is very challenging. <laughs> it is. It is because we're um, so much of a reflection of all the things that happen from, you know, birth to 13 and those informative years, those emotionally, you know, charged years where we want to be liked, we want to be accepted, we want to be loved, we want people to say kind things to us. I mean, there's not a human being that graces this earth that doesn't have that desire. And it's a natural desire, mm -hmm. but sometimes we lose ourselves in the process. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the desire to be loved, to be accepted, to belong. Exactly. And, yes. you know, and then sometimes I, I will say to people, our role in this earth, from my perception, is to be of service. And being mm -hmm. of service means to to share, to teach, to love, to participate, to just enjoy the rewards that come from living and 
the benefit of the power struggles and the you know lack of acceptance is for us to shed that and to be able to come in and accept ourselves and one of the things I found with my personality work is that you know to say you know I'm a yellow and to be comfortable in my own skin saying I'm a yellow and then I can go and say okay now I'm a green and know what that means to me and know what my needs are and my emotional intimacy needs or my basic needs and also to know what irritates me mm-hmm. so I can say to someone you know I need time to think about this and you know give me the time to think about this without creating the problems and mm-hmm. then I don't compromise and they understand where things are mm-hmm. so of all the colors which ones you know because boundaries are so important which ones could you say which ones it's easiest for them to set boundaries is which ones are more challenged to set boundaries oh absolutely the red is the easiest one to set boundaries and the reason really for that is neurologically their mantra in life is what you see is what you get. And any time that you put them in a power struggle position, they are going to let you know. There's no qualms about it. They will say to you, this is unacceptable or, you know, out of my face or whatever it needs to be. It isn't always the most tactful or loving way to say it, but they get off their chest what they need to and then they move on. Mm-hmm. And you know where you stand. You know what pushed their buttons. You know what irritates them. The, the, the irritation of the red the most is people wasting their time. Mm-hmm. And if someone wastes their time, they will say, you're wasting my time. Very clear forward. That's setting a boundary. The personalities that have the most difficult time setting boundaries is the green personality. And the reason for that is, first of all, greens don't like limitations. In fact, I found in my personality work using color is a lot easier than using names or labels because the green is an individual. They want to be unique. They don't want to be categorized or anything else. But the word boundaries to them sounds so judgmental. And their neurology of who they are is not judgmental. Mm -hmm. So immediately by setting a boundary or using the word, they're already in conflict with themselves. But what they can say is they can say to them, that hurts my feelings. That's not acceptable. That's not the behavior that I desire, or that's not what I want from our relationship. When someone does something that a green will say that, they're setting, I call them guidelines, they're setting those parameters and those guidelines. Guidelines, a green word, parameters, a yellow word. They're setting those guidelines and parameters to tell people, if you do this again, there's going to be a power struggle, and that's not what I desire in a relationship. Mm-hmm. And so which one would be the most codependent then? Would that be, of all of those, the orange? or? Yes, the orange is the most codependent. They have Their basic needs are they need security, they need stability, and as a result, and because they don't like the conflict and because... They don't want, uh, you know, this emotionally charged environment, especially in their home. What they will do is they will basically suppress their own emotions. And the irony of that is, is that other personalities see them as being indecisive, and that's not the case at all. Or they see them as being helpless. That's not the case at all. Or 
or a submissive, not the case at all. And as a result, they are seen other than who they are, and people will try to domineer them, to be domineering with them. But the orange will put up with a lot. They have a tremendous amount of tolerance. Mm-hmm. And as a result, they are the most prone for codependent relationships. They would rather stay in a bad relationship for the security and the stability than they would to get out of it and have that fear of unknown. So do you have a little more time to spend with us? I would love to ask I more do. questions. Absolutely. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so your work involves seeing the aura. What does the aura look like, and what's the difference between a healthy and an unhealthy aura? Oh, the aura is... Um, it's like this, you know, I have to go back and kind of what the writings will, you know, that we know about auras. It's literally like a vapor coming off the physical body. For example, if someone were very, very warm and they went and stood in a freezer, mm-hmm. you would actually see that vapor coming off of the warm body. That's what the aura looks like. It's always in movement. It's very um, luminescent, meaning that it's very transparent. So do you see material. all the layers of the aura, the etheric field and the, the astral body? And, okay. I do, in the work that I do. And, and, you know, I don't know, I can't really say, KG, from the very beginning I did because, you know, all I did was call it a glow around people. Mm-hmm. And I could see the light and I could see the dynamics of the change of light and, I could watch, I was so much fun to take out to lunch, I could watch people eat foods and how it would change their auras, or I could watch them talk and be able to see their aura changes, change when they laugh or uh, when it, they would get the bill or whatever it was. So it really is something that I've developed over the course of time to Your learn perception. about the layers. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and to see what the... You know, I see the field from, first of all, the soul. And the soul is the purest form of who we are. That, for me, that is the aura. And it's always dancing and light. There's lots of color. It's always reaching out. It can look like an octopus tentacles going directions. It can, when we find someone that we have this connection with, it's like our whole aura just goes from around our body and just like a tractor beam to Mm -hmm. them. So very dynamic. Lots of color, lots of movement. We have a brighter aura around the crown of our head than we do in our body. That's because those chakras are tied to the soul. But it's a magnificent informational pool of who we are on every level. So does it have actually images in it? I don't see. I can see color, but I don't see much definition. But when I when I focus with my more like a clear... Um, cognizant way I I see things in that way like images and yes shapes uh, for, and things like that yeah for me in the looking in the field I really don't see images as with you I can see the field I can see the colors mm-hmm. I've learned over the course of time and my work around working with the aura that certain colors have uh, meanings to them they affect certain chakras so there's a lot of kind of research and and what I call methodology to that. But when you connect with someone in that intuitive way, then the neurology of the brain 
based on how we're hardwired, will give us the information the way we need. So say, for example, with you and who you are, the first place that you'll go is the visual. Mm -hmm. And so when you connect with someone, you'll get these images. And then, you know, you may go in and then you'll get this knowing and then maybe you'll get these body sensations or maybe you'll self-talk or maybe, you know, in the evolution of your intuition, you'll be able to hear words or see words or hear a buzz or something. Yeah. So it's evolutionary. Okay. I understand. That helps a lot. I understand more now. Yeah, and you know, I, I, since I wasn't, well, I was born with this. I just was kind of slow and I think getting it. I, you know, I keep thinking, oh my gosh, what is my sacred agreement that I had to have a near-death experience in order to really find out who I was? It's mm-hmm. not something I would certainly uh, encourage other people. But I do know that uh, from not being born with it, being meaning knowing it, when somebody says they see the aura, KG, I'm like you. It's like, what do you see? You get these images. Not that I'm wrong or they're right. I just want to know. I'm so curious. Yeah, I think everybody, we all have different, you know, we just channel in the information differently. We do. And every bit of information you can get if someone else has that intuitive sight helps you with your own, developing your own discernment. Exactly. And, and, you know, in our humanness, we do need to be able to talk to people. And, you know, it isn't human ego that needs validation, but I can tell you from my work and listening to you and your work, we work in this world of the non-visible or the intangible, and we know it is as real as if we could reach out and touch it. But when we For me, it's it, more real. <laughs> it is. Oh, it is so real. In fact, it is literally reality of life. Everything else is kind of illusion. But when we... Coming and going. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So what we do is when we touch that part and we share that information, if someone is receptive to it, again, always wanting that permission part, that kind of that ethics of this, this part of the work, when we share something and they validate us, that's the part that says, okay, I'm ready to take the next step. I'm ready to learn more. And it's the gifts of all those people that come in and say, you know, Carol, let me validate, or Carol, let me tell you this. And it's like, oh, my gosh, this is really real. Mm -hmm. After all these years, I still do that once in a while. And then it's like, okay, I'm ready to go to the next level. It's like being embraced and appreciated. It is. is. That's truly what I I found for my work is it's that embracing that is the real reward. That's when we're really of service, where it's non-judgmental on our part. We're like open vessels, they are, and we meet at a place that is so sacred that it's like, wow, that's what I came back for now that I realize that those are the rewards of life. Mm -hmm. And right now, a lot of us, I think, most of us, if not all, I don't know everyone on the planet, so I can't say, but I know my vehicle is going through a tremendous amount of cleansing right now, preparing me and uh, just releasing a lot of old karmic goop, I guess you could call that the technical word for it. <laughs> <laughs> You're about as clinical as I am. I love it. <laughs> well, it is because, um, you know, in the evolutionary process that if you look at the process of all the change, 
we're preparing for next year, and next year is the year of resolve. Mm-hmm. We're going through that. We're in the gateway. We are in the gateway. We are literally, we are. We're, we're not only at the gateway, we've touched the other side, and we know what it looks like, and we're And there's excited. a lot we have to leave behind. Oh, now there's where yeah. we are. It's like, oh, my gosh, look at this. Oh, my gosh, look at what I have to leave. Mm-hmm. And then we go in, it's like, can I? Do I want to? And there's I don't know, you know, what are the choices? That's a very important thing to it think is. about. This morning I worked with my inner goblin. and uh, <laughs> You have one of those also, huh? <laughs> and it was, it was really wonderful. It was really wonderful to embrace my inner goblin and to soothe and comfort him. And he really, he just needed to be loved and held and given a job. Absolutely, and, and uh, recognize we're not going to give them up completely because, oh no. oh you know, no. the neurology of who we are, we're going to always be tied to that world of reality and obvious and tangible, and that's where that part lives, and, and yeah. the design I've found with mine is it just keeps saying to me, Carol, I'm just trying to protect you, yeah. and it's like, I know that, I love you for that, but you look at Look at all those closets full of that stuff. Look at all those ba- that baggage and everything. So what are we going to do? And it's go, well, let's clean it out. So you're right. <laughs> and I think it's just beginning the work, and then the work goes easy. It does. And I think that a lot of where we are in our individual and collectiveness is, is that we're realizing that we're designed to struggle. And struggle isn't hard, but suffering well, think about really the caterpillar as it, it is transformed into the whole metamorphosis and how it has to struggle to develop its wings to come out of the cocoon. Otherwise, it would not be able to fly. Exactly. And you know, the butterfly doesn't suffer. It doesn't stay in that cocoon and It go, doesn't suffer over me. its suffering. It's like suffering, choosing not to suffer over your suffering. Exactly. You know, yeah. it's in there going, oh my gosh. I'm going to have to leave this cocoon. What am I going to do? Yeah. How am I going to make it? And all these things. And it, yeah. again, you know, that's our humanness. And that's, I, I really, for me, what I've learned is that all of the suffering is what really inspires us to go deep inside and say, you know what? Do I want to hang on to that anymore? Or do I want to just clean the closet and let it go? Yes. Yes. Well, we it's are definitely, definitely letting you know it's there. <laughs> oh yes, oh yes. This is. Uh, in fact, I was talking to you about. Uh, you know, I was doing a class the other day, and I always do a lot of preparation for the classes. And one of the things is I always go and uh, talk to the council. I would say my council, and they always chuckle like, "Who are you, Carol Kimasabi? Is this only you?" And so forth. They have a marvelous sense of humor. But one of the things they said is sit down, buckle up, and hang on. And of course, me, I went in immediately like, oh, really? This isn't difficult enough? And then what they said is that to remember things are not as they appear, that Mm -hmm. the gift of life is to Mm -hmm. be able to turn into something like that butterfly, that caterpillar. Mm -hmm. Wonderful metaphor. To shift shift your perception about what's happening and what's going on, really. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And all we are is thought and every one of those thoughts are a perception and 
it's easy to say. It's not always easy. Even, you know, it's I'm much easier to say. <laughs> it is. You know, it's like change the thought. Okay, I can do that. Change the perception. I don't know about that. Well, but I'm going to work on it. How about that? <laughs> yes. Well, it's just it's going inside, going inside. There's yes. a magic in all of us when you're willing to show up inside of yourself just and just be with it. Exactly. Magical things happen. Uh, it so really that a shift occurs, and then you know you go along, and then not, you reach another stage. You know, yeah. so so what does pre illness look like in in the energy body, Carol? Uh, basically, it's um to me it looks like a whole bunch of tangled uh, rays. It's kind of like uh, somebody uh, went through a car wash and you know went through the blow dryer, and everything is just not fluffed it's just really a tangled mm-hmm. mess and sometimes there'll be protrusions where there's what i call hot spots or blockages or sometimes there's depletions so each one of those representations is that depletion for me is that someone is giving away of themselves more than they're restoring or rebuilding or they've kind of gone into their reserves energetically mm-hmm. a protrusion is that somebody's trying too hard that they're trying to reach out that they're you know blocking themselves in the process and then a blockage is that you know it's like we've separated from ourselves energetically it's kind of like that physical and spiritual self or you know in two different continents and they're trying to communicate and they can't get the right cell phone and and blockages are not life threatening but they are threatening to the energy field that if they stay there long enough, we kind of lose sight of who we are. Mm -hmm. So the energy field is a wonderful way to be able to tell us. We can even say, you know, I don't have much energy today. If you say that, then stop, take a deep breath and look around what's happening in your life. Are you pressed-dressed? Or, Mm -hmm. you know, we hit our elbow and we start to rub it. That hitting the elbow caused the energy flow in that part of the body to become limited or to become thin, as I call it, or, you know, a very little. And when we rub it, we just, like, build it back up again. So, you know, it shows up in the organs and glands as well. And mm-hmm. I can see a liver that's not functioning properly and uh, that's maybe so, a thyroid. So you're primarily clairvoyant or are you also your other intuitive uh, vehicles, have they also been developing as you've... They have. They have. And, in fact... Uh, they have, first of all, clairvoyant at literally being able to see it, and then clairvoyant, and then it went into uh, clairaudient, mm-hmm. where I could actually take the pictures and start putting words to it, and that's when I was able to start really sharing information with people around my clairvoyance, and then I would go in, and my body would become a, it's a empathic, so I'm able to literally feel what they feel. That was uncomfortable. I've grown into mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. Realizing what a great gift someone. Yes, I am very empathic, and that oh. is very. I've I've yet to feel, get comfortable with that, though myself. Well, because so. you, sometimes the people that come to us, you know, are greatest teachers, and they share something, and it's like ooh, and it kind of gets inside of us, and we can feel it, and the gift of it is so we can help be of service to them. But when they leave, we don't always realize that they gifted us with something. And we have to, I know in the work, I have to, after every session with someone, I have to go in and literally 
talk to my body and feel it. Is there anything that's a residual from the reading mm -hmm. before I move into another one so I don't continue the process? But again, it's a process and I had to learn what it means and how to work with it. Mm -hmm. And then I reached that place, I just know. Mm -hmm. And But it is evolutionary. Yes. So how do thoughts affect our aura? Well, every thought is energy. And if the thoughts are in alignment with our neurology of our personality color, mm -hmm. then the aura becomes fluffy. Yes. If the thoughts create a, a happy emotion or a positive emotion, our aura becomes fluffy. And what I mean by that is that in that fluffiness, um, then what will occur in that fluffiness is that it reaches out to people and says, here's where we are. And what you have is you have this fluffiness happening in the background. Can you hear that? <laughs> uh <-huh>. <laughs> <laughs> I have a very uh, very sensitive little dog. And uh, so for all of your listeners and everything, you just touch my little dog's aura, all of you. And she just, it's like she was sitting here. She lays here quiet. She perked up. It's like, oh, Mom's talking about other people's auras. <laughs> so, uh, but uh, it does. It, and then when we get into those places of compromise, and where we're not feeling good about ourselves, then that aura shrinks down so tight it looks like this second skin on us. So, yeah. And they all get constricted, all the energy bodies, all the different Absolutely. layers and constrict it's, it's like It's like taking someone and KG who we are, every one of us, is that we should probably all be at least 6 foot 8, 7 foot energetically, mm -hmm. 385 to 450 pounds energetically. Mm -hmm. And yet if you look at us, in our humanness, and you compact this into a size 2 or a size 3 or a 175-pound body or a 105-pound body, and then you add all the negative emotions and that compresses the aura, oh, my gosh, it's like we're ready to explode inside, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Involution. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Involution, explosion, the gift so of we're, explosion. So we're doing you have to it, let it out. <laughs> yes. I think we've reached that place where we just can't involute anymore, you know? Yes. Too compressed. Yes, I agree with you. We are too compressed. So we are too what, compressed. What are the needs of the soul, the mind, and the body, and what happens when those needs aren't met? Well, you know, it, when I really started looking at the work around the research around illness and so forth, what I really found is is that the body, mind, and soul does have very specific needs. And, and in those needs, if we compromise those needs, consistently or to the extremes, then it breaks it down. The soul needs to grow and express itself. All of life, as we said, is about evolution. It's about expressing ourselves, expressing our creativity, our individuality. It's about expressing um, our needs, our wants, our desires, our dreams. All of those things are what the soul thrives on and we thrive on. So when we stop when we stop expressing how we feel about things, it's like taking such an integral part of who we are and just gagging ourselves. And so we need to always find the freedom or the creative way to be able to share our dreams and to share all the things. The mind needs to feel secure and in control. Mm -hmm. That's that conscious mind, that little left frontal lobe that is so little in the whole grand scheme of the brains and yet runs the brain yet runs about 90% of it and it needs to know that you're going to gather information the way you need 
and that it has control over the decision-making. So if you make decisions based on emotional judgment and you try to do it logically, your mind's going to go in there and go, hello, this is a problem, don't do this. So that's what it needs. And when we say control, it isn't control of other people or control of our environment. We need to control our thoughts. Yes, exactly. Well, that is our own power, really, of control. That's the only place, isn't it, truthfully, KG, the only place in our life that we have any power is really in our own thoughts. Mm -hmm. Then what the body needs, the body needs to feel supported and loved. And we're, in our humanness, we need people. And we can be in isolation and that introspection and contemplation and seclusion for a period of time. It's helpful because it gives us a chance to think and to observe our behavior and, you know, all of the things that your goblin and my uh, ghoul come in and tell us all the things. That's healthy for us to do. But in our humanness, we need to interact with nature and animals and people and we need the energy and the vibration of nature to be able to help us in the healing process and we need to have people that we can look at them and and touch them and smell their, you know, cologne or their skin. That intimacy is so important to the well-being of the body. Mm-hmm. And when we don't touch or we don't have that connection at that soul level, the body hurts. It's it struggles with its own well-being truthfully. So what's the connection between the soul, the mind, and the body and autoimmune disorders then? Well, I have found that the immune system is really the barometer of our emotions. And I know the heart attaches the emotions, but the immune system, when we are in a happy place, as I call it, or a place where we have synchronicity or that our mind feels like it's in control, or that we have, and we have people around us, and we're doing things that we really enjoy doing, and something that that we look forward to, or that's important. Our immune system is very healthy. It's and our body supports that by creating the desire for foods that are alkaline versus acidic. And mm-hmm. uh, we don't crave the sugar, but we'll actually crave vegetables, or we'll crave fruit, or we'll crave things that are naturally healthy in the body. So when the connection with the immune system, when we get angry with ourselves, Edgar Casey said that a person can't be anger, angry with their neighbor and not have stomach and immune system disorders. We can't hold that anger and those toxins and those self-directed thoughts toward ourselves that create that destructive, sabotaging behavior and remain healthy. So the mind, the body, and the soul, that immune system, and not just the spleen, but the immune system is its totality of what it is, is literally part of every part of who we are, and it tells us whether we're healthy or not. Mm -hmm. It's It's kind of like the community environment. It is, exactly. It's the community environment between the body, mind, and soul internally. Mm -hmm. And when we're in harmony where we're not at odds, where our body is feeling good, that our mind isn't fixated on the hurts of the body, the mind is open and receptive, Mm -hmm. we grow, we learn, we share, all of the things that are healthy, then the defense mechanism of the body is healthy, and then we have a 
we're able to ward off viruses and bacteria externally or chemical chain reactions internally. So those attitudes we have towards our neighbors or friends or the community or whatever at large are just a reflection as without, so within. So it's just a reflection of what maybe some deep internal attitudes we have going on within our own selves. Absolutely. Well said. Well said, KG. That is so true. And and again, we hold those, harbor those attitudes, uh, you know, against ourselves, like we don't like our neighbors. Well, over the course of time, if we don't like our neighbors, then we develop that our neighbors are bad. And if they're bad, then everybody's bad. And if everybody's bad, then I must be bad. And if I'm bad and everybody's bad, then what am I going to do? And it literally is a chain reaction. Mm -hmm. So you are so right with what you said. And also within to without. I mean, maybe those are some judgments we have going on within our own selves we aren't able to accept, and so we project them onto our neighbors. Absolutely. Absolutely. In fact, uh, there's been many things written that basically allude to the fact is the things that you don't like in others are things that you should look at within mm-hmm. yourself. Mm-hmm. And it isn't that we're, you know, again, it's not about creating so much psychological dysfunction. It's just about being sensitive to how you feel, the prejudices that you have, and, mm-hmm. and where did those come from, and, and are they truly a reflection of who you are? And if most of us in our reality and went inside and ask about maybe the biases or prejudices we have, whether it's money or people or cultures or whatever it is, and we look at it inside, Rarely, rarely, if ever, I've found in all my thousands of people I've talked to in my classes, rarely were they something we were born with. They are literally conditioning. Mm-hmm. Yes, well, I think most illness is lifestyle. You know, it's... Right? All the, of those... The, yeah. the things that we suffer a lot are things from our choices, they're not just predispositions. Absolutely. I, I, One of the things I have learned, both from coming back from the near-death experience about who we are as humans and then watching us, is we are never born in fear and we are never born with guilt. Mm-hmm. And those are the gifts of our culture, no matter where that culture is. Guilt is the... Really, I find if I were to peel back all emotions, all negative emotions, even anger, if I were to go in, the the emotion that creates the greatest suffering in our humanness is guilt. Yes. And the fragmentation and the transference and the projection, all the things you and I have talked about in your wonderful show is we feel guilty about ourselves, we feel guilty about what we do, and in many cases we even feel guilty about who we are and in the case of some people I've worked with, they even feel guilty about being born. Mm-hmm. And that's where I find the suffering really mm-hmm. occurs. And the shame, and I think the shame that comes from the oh, guilt. And then yes. from guilt comes shame. From shame comes resentment. From mm-hmm. resentment comes hostility. Mm-hmm. From hostility A lot of defenses. Rage. Absolutely. Anger and then and we defense. put those defenses up and we bury ourselves mm-hmm. off mm-hmm. from... Mm-hmm and from the opportunity to be able to grow and expand not only 
in our personal self, but even from a spiritual self? Well, I feel all healing from my years, of over 35 years of working with people, that all healing is about self-forgiveness. It is. It always seems to come down to, um, you know, the self-acceptance. It does. And, you know, if we really went in and looked at self-forgiveness, the reality of it is we're not going to forget the events. The human mind just stores it someplace else. But we can we can let go of that emotional charge. Mm-hmm. And the way to do that is self-acceptance. And mm-hmm. I was thinking the other day as I was uh, working on a book that I'm working on is that it's so easy for us to accept others and it's so difficult for us to accept who we are. We will accept the foibles of others and not of ourselves. And then if you add a yellow on top of it, as you and I both know, it's like, oh, my goodness. I start out by saying there's a quote, anytime you have a relationship with anyone other than yourself, there's bound to be dysfunction. And what I didn't add, because we weren't personality, unless you're a yellow, and then you don't even need that. (laughs) 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 I always say to yellows very lovingly, you don't need any enemies. You've got one inside. Just go ahead and say you've done something stupid, and oh, my gosh, watch us. We'll dig the hole. We'll bury ourselves. We'll keep shoveling. <laughs> How funny we are when we stop and we look at it. And when we laugh like that and we look at it, that's really just saying, you know, Carol, as a yellow, you're probably going to dig that hole, hun. So how yes, far do you want to dig it? <laughs> it's, the, it's that perfectionist drive. Yes, you know, it is. All the different pieces, you're just integrating so many facets. And it's just, it's limitless. It's endless. It is. It is. So it's really not a job for a human. So, <laughs> <laughs> Boy, isn't that the truth? Uh, yes. I think that's where we get in trouble. We think like a human. <laughs> yes. So what is the role of the spine from your perspective, Carol, and how was the spine used by the ancient metaphysicians to diagnose and treat illness? Interesting. From the uh, metaphysicians going back in my research, they really believed that all illness was a mental illness. And what they meant is is that illness is literally the result of ill thoughts. Mm. And ill thoughts are created around fears. And in the work that they did is they believed that if they could help a person identify the fear that was causing them the ill thoughts, then by removing the fear or working with the fear, they could remove the thoughts and as a result then the body would restore itself back to balance. Mm -hmm. And what they would do is they would put a hand at the top of the spine uh, where the brain stem starts down to the bottom of the coccyx and tailbone, and they would first of all see if the flow of energy from the top of the spine got to the bottom. If it did not, then they would literally, like using a tuning fork with their hands, would go over the spine to find out where that disconnection of the flow or the constriction of that flow would be. And over the course of time, what they did is they realized that there were six basic fears and every fear in our humanness that we create around those fears will show up in the spine. The fear of survival is in the tailbone coccyx area. That's tied to the first chakra. The fear of unknown is between that lumbar and sacral part of the spine. We all have a fear of abandonment. We have a fear of being betrayed. We have a fear of rejection. And we have a fear of dying. And 
their, the way they would teach their students is the minute you would come into form and drop through the birth canal, your entire existence was around survival. If you got what you needed in order to survive, then you did not have that fear. But you always had a fear, you always had the unknown. And if you didn't have the fear, if people would come and they would take care of your needs as a baby, you didn't develop the fear of unknown. However, if you would cry in your cradle or in your crib or in the grass and no one came, you developed a fear of unknown, will they ever come? Then what they believed is, is in the humanness that we need others, that if we are afraid to be alone, have the fear of abandonment and fear of being alone, then what we'll do is we affect the lower back. And then the betrayal is in the center part of the spine, and they believe that if others would abandon you, then they betrayed you. And if you believe that others betrayed you, then you betrayed yourself. And then that's where you separated your soul from your body because the soul is always in acceptance. But the mind and the body, in time anybody betrays us, we become afraid that we're going to be alone, we're going to have the unknown, and we're not going to survive. And then as we evolved in our humanness as that little baby and we grew into our age, three, four, five years old, now we wanted to be loved. And if we weren't loved or accepted or appreciated, then we were rejected. And then they believe that the human has no fear of dying. They have a fear of suffering. Mm. And if the ill thoughts are built upon all these fears or one fear that's not worked with, then the person will suffer through the emotions and attitudes. So that's the way they look at illness and their whole treatment and their diagnosis was not in the form that you have bad person that you have a fear around survival. They would work with someone to create an environment where they felt safe. And then as a result, they would create healthy thoughts. And then the energy would go back into balance. And as a result, the body would. Mm -hmm. Interesting way to look at it, isn't it? Yeah, I, that sounds like that would be very helpful. You know, I think it, that it is the environment. I mean, that's from what Dr. Bruce Lipton says with the biology belief, that if you, you know, you get the environment, uh, the lifestyle, the environment, uh, that that's when, you know, his his research with the, he says we're skin-covered Petri dishes. <laughs> you might absolutely we absolutely and are. That, that's you know, great. You get the... <laughs> You get them in the right um, environment, then they have a, a, they develop totally different. They have totally different thoughts, and they will heal. And um, so I, that totally fits with what he has said from his research. What you're saying, absolutely. And uh, Dr. Larry Dosey also did a research project around cancer and talking. When you said petri dishes, it triggered this thought in it that in looking at cancer, there were cancer cells put in two different Petri dishes, and on one Petri dish, it was given chemotherapy and all the things that it needed, and in the other dish, there were shamans, and there were uh, rabbis, and ministers, and priests, and, and healers, and, you know, eclectic group of people that would meet, and that would come, and they would create the intention for these cells to be able to heal, and they would, in their own way, in their own dialogue, 
talked to these cells, and what they found in this research project is the cells that were being given love or looking at the forgiveness and, and each one doing what they did, within three days the cells started to heal, mm -hmm. and yet it took three weeks for the cells in chemotherapy to even start making a change. Mm -hmm. We'll so talk we, more about that. Why is change necessary for necessary for healing to happen, Carol, and what can people do to engage change in their life and promote healing? Yeah, well, from the way it works, uh, I'll give it very quick uh, different ways, is that we only have so many cells in our body to be able to hold our memories or hold our emotions. And in order to be able to make room for new experiences or to create new thoughts, we have to have change to be able to literally eliminate those memories from our archives, not only in our brain, but also our archives in our cells. And when we, when we make change, and especially if we make change because it's something that's important to us and that we truly desire and that we have a sense of control, meaning that we're the initiator of it, it goes in and it cleans out a lot of these cells. The brain itself, if we carry negative emotions or pessimism in one facet of our life too long, the brain neurologically will automatically reorganize itself in a way, and we don't even have to be engaged in it, in a way that all of those short-term memories that aren't important literally are archived somewhere deep within the Smithsonian part of our brain. Mm -hmm. The parts of our experiences that are of value to us will go to long-term memory, and our short-term memory which we usually uh, engage with two to three years, all those events and everything, so it's constantly rearranging itself. All of that is change. The soul knows that it's only in change are we going to grow and express ourselves. And so from the change aspect of it, it's, it's like going in and every cell that when it dies and it's reborn can be born totally different, but not if we don't make the changes. The memory is different. The chemistry codons are different. But if we don't make those changes, then it's difficult. The first thing that I found is that in my work in personality, all four personality colors define change differently. When I started talking about the red personality and not wanting change and then playing devil's advocate, what they're just saying to you is, I don't have enough information to embrace the change. But reds will change. The only thing is, is they want change under their terms and conditions. They don't want somebody to tell them something's going to change that's going to put them in the fear of survival or the fear of unknown. They don't want to, you know, they don't want to take those risks that could put them in a place where they could lose things. So I think we have to go back in and we have to look at ourselves and evaluate what does change mean to us. Mm -hmm. And then rethink it. And then take away the negativity around change and start slowly. The green personality loves change. They will change anything and everything, and all at one time. And it's kind of like a ship out at sea in a storm. If you pull up all your storm anchors, you're going to get kind of lost out there and spin around. So change has to be something that's, again, thought through, evaluated emotionally, seeing if it's something that truly we can commit the very depths of who we are, and if we can, it's effortless. But again, go back and know what change means to you, what creates the resistance, 
How can you create change in a way that's healthy for you, that's uh, inspiring to you, and then take one baby step and then change one thing and then take a baby step and change something else? I think personally from my research where we get in trouble is that we've been so much in this instant gratification conditioning is if it's not working, let's change everything. And I think we lose sight of ourselves, mm-hmm. truthfully. Again, my own opinion. Mm-hmm. So, well, thank you so much for sharing with us. Do you have anything else you'd like to add before we close, Carol? Any upcoming events you'd like to announce? Well, I always have a monthly, and thank you for asking, I always have a monthly teleclass. They can find it on my website at www.ritberger.com. Every month I feature an illness, and uh, we actually have archives that people can purchase the PDF. But I look at illness from the physical, the psychological, the energetic, map it in the chakras, personality, and the whole thing. That's the thing that I find that uh, I would like to share. And I would like to thank you, KG, for your show and for bringing this kind of information forward to people in a loving, secure, safe place. Um, you're certainly doing your work, honey, and I'm really, it's an honor to be a part of that. Oh, that's so sweet. I really appreciate your, you know, seeing what I'm doing and being so loving and supportive yourself. So to learn more about Dr. Carol Whiteberger and her work as a medical intuitive, schedule a private reading or register for her free monthly teleclass, please visit her website at rightberger.com where you can also take a short assessment to learn your own personality color. That website is rightberger.com, R-I-T-B-E-R-G-E-R.com. Have a beautiful day, everyone. A warm mahalo. Thanks again for joining us, Carol. It's been such a pleasure having you with us. It's my pleasure also. Thank you, KG.